Right, wonderful full Hong Kong theater. Welcome. I'm glad you were all able to brave the weather and to come to this talk. Um, I would really like to welcome you all, obviously, but also uh, Andrew Bloom, who's come, for, who's been on a on a large tour around the world, not only to write this book, but also to come and present it to several different people. Um, uh, just a few uh, admin things, um, in case you are online at the moment and you want to tweet about this uh, public lecture, there is a hashtag. It's hash um, LSE Internet. Not too difficult to remember, I guess. Um, we, I would like to remind you also that the event is being recorded and that barring any technical difficulties, there will be a podcast of the event available afterwards, which you can all listen to. Um, I did read the book, front page to the last page. Um, I really enjoyed the book. It really gave me a, a very interesting, these contradictions between the physicality and the solid nature of the internet, but on the other hand, still that vulnerability, the kind of ethereal quality, which uh, kind of took me on a journey while I was traveling around the world, thinking about really what it is that the internet is, not only physically, but also to me and to all the people that are using it. Um, I think you're going to talk for about 30, 40 minutes. After that, well, I'll just open the floor immediately for questions, so prepare some good questions, because I know Andrew likes to be challenged. That's what he told me. And um, that's it for me for now. I'm giving the floor to you. Thanks. Thank you all for coming. It's amazing to see such a good crowd. Um, it's also amazing to see Ellen's book all dog-eared and soaked with water. <laughs> so, um, the, um, thank you to the LSE also for hosting uh, such a great special place to be in such a great, a great room as well. Um, I will tell you a little bit about the internet. Not necessarily all of how it works, but certainly a lot of what it looks like and, and what it smells like. Um, the, for me, it started uh, with about 10 years of writing about architecture, about buildings. And the interesting thing about writing about architecture is you can make certain assumptions that an architect designs a building and it becomes a place, uh, or many architects design many buildings and they become cities. And regardless of this complicated mix of culture and politics and economics that shapes these buildings and these cities, um, regardless of how, much, of how, difficult, how much difficulty we have understanding uh, what these places are made of, at the end of the day, you can go visit them. And you can walk around, and you can listen to them, and you can see them, and you can smell them. Uh, and you um, can get a sense of their sense of place. You can experience them somehow. Uh, but what was striking to me over the last several years was that I was writing about buildings less and less meant going and seeing places, but more and more meant spending all of my days sitting in front of my computer screen. And even more so over the last several years, uh, I was not only spending all day sitting in front of my screen, but I was then also getting up at the end of the day and looking at this smaller screen that I carried in my pocket. And it seemed as if my relationship to my physical surroundings, my own sense of place, had changed very dramatically, very quickly. You know, whether in uh, you know, 15 or 20 years or so of being online, or of five years or so of being online all the time, of carrying this device that had me online all the time, I had, suddenly I was, my attention was always divided. I was always kind of half inside the screen and half um, in the world around me. And what was even more striking 
than that was the fact that the world inside the screen didn't seem to have any physical reality of its own. Um, there was no sense that the internet existed in any physical way. And when you went to look for images of the internet, uh, this was essentially the only image that you found. Um, this amorphous blob uh, that seemed to be sort of limitless and expansive and you could never find where you are on it. Um, and always as well as reminded me of the, uh, the, the Apollo picture of the Earth, the blue marble picture of the Earth, and sort of similarly suggests sort of how small we are in the face of this massive thing. So there was nothing back there. It was sort of all, it was all ether, you know, no, nothing physical. Uh, and that seemed very confusing to me, and it be became a kind of you know, low-grade existential crisis. You know, how could I know uh, who I was if, um, if I had no idea what this world was behind the screen? Uh, you know, how if we had no sense about what was possibly back there and what its physical reality was. And then one day, uh, this happened. Uh, my internet broke, and the cable guy came to fix it. And he started at this dusty clump of cables behind my couch, and then followed the wire out to the front of my building and down to my building's basement and out to the backyard. And there was this big jumble of cables against the wall. And then there was a squirrel running along a wire. And he said very memorably, I think a squirrel is chewing on your internet. And this seemed astounding because the internet, as all of you know, is a transcendent idea. Um, it's a set of protocols that have changed the world and dating and shopping and revolutions. It is not something squirrels chew on. But it very clearly was something a squirrel had chewed on. And if a squirrel could chew on that piece of the internet, there must be other pieces that squirrels can chew on, I thought. Um, there had to be. You know, this couldn't be the only piece with squirrels. And I had this very clear image in my head of what would happen if you pulled the cable from the wall. Um, sort of where would it go? Could you, could you follow it? Um, what, you know, where, what, would, what, would the, where, you know, what place would this be? Who would work there? What was this? You know, could you, in fact, uh, visit the internet? And the answer was no. You could not visit the internet. Um, only fools treated the internet as a place you could visit. Um, like in South Park, when the internet breaks, and there's no internet to find out that the internet is broken. And they go to California because they hear there's internet there and become refugees and um, eventually find this piece of the internet and um, try to fix it by playing the close encounters of the third kind chord at it. Uh, but that doesn't work, so they shoot at it and that doesn't work. So eventually they climb up behind it and unplug it and plug it back in. And that works. They say the flashing yellow light is steady green. You know, they're all saved. And so that's, I mean, this is, this is, who, this is, this is who thinks the internet is a place. Or if the internet isn't that, um, the internet is a single small box with a red light on it from the IT crowd where they convince their colleague that they've talked to the elders of the internet and she can borrow it for the afternoon for an office presentation. Normally, it lives at the top of Big Ben, uh, because that's where you, where you get the best reception. But they have negotiated its loan, its very brief loan. And she says, this is the internet, the whole internet? Is it heavy? And they say, of course not. The internet doesn't weigh anything. And I was embarrassed by this, because only fools went to look for the internet. There was nothing there. Um, or there's a sort of whole growing body of poetry of people who imagine what the internet is, is like. And my favorite is, huh? 
is a writer named Christine Smallwood who says that the, the history of the internet is a history of metaphors about the internet, all stumbling around this dilemma. How do we talk to each other about an invisible God? And then she weighs the merits of describing the internet as a Tootsie Roll, a hot tub, a highway, or a plane before she finally decides that the internet must, the real internet, the internet I wanted to visit, must be very ugly. And she wishes instead that the internet looked like Matt Damon or like lines of light written by an invisible hand in the night sky. So we're back again to the amorphous blob as the only sort of accessible image of the internet as a physical thing. But there was, there was one precedent. There was one guy who seemed to know what the internet actually was. And that was Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska, um, who said uh, very famously, at least in my country, the internet is a series of tubes. It's not a big truck you can dump something on. And all of us thought this was hilarious. We all made fun of him because the internet, again, was this transcendent set of ideas. It was this thing that had absolutely changed the world. The last thing it was was a series of tubes. Um, but in fact, of course, what else could it be? You know, what, there must be something that physically connects us. What else could it be except for a series of tubes or, or conduits or pipes or whatever you want to call them? Um, but I, I know a tube when I see one, and sure enough, the Internet is made of lots of tubes. And those are the kind of tubes that I want to, want to talk about a little bit. Um, the, uh, the basic idea, the sort of basic unit, physically speaking, and the important caveat with that is that if the Internet is... Um, if the internet as it appears on our screen comes about, you know, if, if behind that any single given web page might have thousands of processes that lead to this amalgamation that you see in your screen, and if logically that's very difficult to track, it's very difficult to sort of trace each one of these processes, and they're based on all these complicated algorithms and protocols and zeros and ones and bits that are sort of magical for most of us, physically speaking, what the internet is actually made of, the machines it consists of, and geographically speaking, where the internet is, um, are very accessible to us. You know, this is the world we know how to navigate. This is the world that we live in. And so there is a very clear distinction for me about the sort of where, what the internet is physically and geographically rather than how it works logically, although, of course, they go back and forth a fair amount. And physically speaking, it ends up in places like this, in tubes buried alongside railroad tracks filled with light. Um, and so if the basic unit connection is a fiber optic cable filled with light, uh, what's amazing is that they often trace these paths of existing infrastructure. Uh, this is a photograph that um, came out of a, a photo essay for Wired that I put together um, that, um, that had this, followed this very strange conversation with a, 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 a PR person at a very company that owns a very large piece of the internet, a big piece of internet backbone, and said, so are there like pots in the middle of the country where the signal is regenerated? She said, let me find out. And then we then set up this phone conversation with a guy with a pickup truck in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, who, which is the exact geographic middle of the US, um, who was responsible for maintaining the regeneration pots, these buildings that amplify the fiber optic signals in a 500 mile radius from Kansas City. And then there followed this very surreal conversation about which was the most beautiful of these regeneration huts. And it turned out, turned out to be this one. So this is the kind of absolute basic physical unit. If the internet's a network of networks, physically speaking, it's all about 
one network connecting to another network, uh, Facebook to a Google, you know, Facebook to a BT, to a Comcast, to a Time Warner, to a Virgin, whatever it is, always one network connecting to another, with, often with yellow fiber optic cables like this, literally cables filled with light so that if you bend them, you can see the light come out. And the basic unit today of that is a, in, inside the cable, the pulses of light, is a 10 gigabit per second wave. You know, so maybe a thousand times your home connection or the capable of carrying 10,000 video streams. And even more remarkable is that you can then put different, many, multiple dozens and dozens of wavelengths or colors of light through a single strand of fiber. So you have not just 10 gigabits per second through a single fiber optic cable, uh, but perhaps 60 or 70 different wave, 10 gigabit wavelengths through a single fiber optic cable. And then they begin to aggregate. You know, you end up with buildings filled with fiber optic cables each one representing the decision of two network engineers um, who have most likely had a few beers and decided that the other one is clueful, which is the opposite of clueless, and that they can be trusted to connect my network to your network and that this would be good for both of our networks. Because there's this incredible idea that the internet is a network of networks and each network is operating autonomously, uh, but no network can be alone. Every network has to connect to others. And so if that, if that connection, you know, if it appears to all happen automatically from our screens, it only happens automatically because of all these individual decisions of two network engineers meeting most often at a conference, um, uh, one called, in particular called NANOG, the North American Network Operators Group, that's very important, uh, not only in North America, but here as well, where about 300 inter-networking engineers, network engineers who are in the business of connecting their network to other networks, uh, spend a lot of time getting to know each other and learning to trust each other and figuring out who they think is the best person, wh who, who would be, who, which networks it would be useful to connect my network to. Um, or if not useful and based on trust, then perhaps um, added in some money. They become the customer of another network and pay, pay that other network. So then, so the, all of those individual decisions then sort of begin to aggregate uh, in, into, into buildings. Um, you know, you have buildings filled with one router, one refrigerator-sized thing with, you know, blinking lights and yellow cables coming out of it connected to the router, the refrigerator-sized thing of another network. Um, in this, these huge building-scale agglomerations, um, this is one of my favorites. This is 60 Hudson Street in New York, uh, which is... Um, was at one point the Western Union uh, Telegraph Building, has a kind of discontinuous telecom history, um, but then was sort of repurposed as a building for internet networks and, 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 uh, and, and, and all sorts of telecom networks. Um, for uh, often because in these buildings all are like this, there aren't very many of these buildings. There are about a dozen buildings in the world that are by far the most important buildings where the networks of the internet connect to each other um, by virtue of the fact that more networks connect to each other in these buildings, usually about an order of magnitude more than the next tier of buildings, usually somewhere around 400 dominant networks compared to the next tier that might have 40 or so networks connecting to each other. And what's, what's particularly striking about 60 Hudson is it's home to about a half dozen very important networks, which are the, uh, the transatlantic cables uh, connecting North America and Europe. And um, that becomes 
the key thing. I mean, that be, they, they all go to the same place because they are all in the same place. They sort of you, networks go to where networks are, so they can minimize the difficulty of connecting physically to each other. So they can do it across the room rather than across town uh, or across the country. And what ends up happening is the the, the place becomes very important. The, you can't once you have this building scale jumble of cables of connections between networks, uh, you can't move it very easily. Um, when you walk into these places, they are like walking into a machine. They're incredibly loud, and um, they're cold. They air conditioned very heavily to keep the machines cool. They have a very distinctive smell. Um, that's something sort of like burnt toast with a little bit of kind of plastic sort of new car smell and then with a little bit of kind of air conditioner freon. Um, and it's the same smell all over the world, somewhat bizarrely. Um, the internet, it's this very distinct internet smell. And you walk in, I, I was just in a, in a, in a piece of internet in, for the first time in about a year, and it was the exact same smell. So it was surprisingly, surprisingly homesick for it. But if, you, if the buildings otherwise are like walking into machines, then there's a room like this one, um, which is the place where the internet, where this building essentially connects to the earth. It's called the fiber vault. And if everywhere else is loud and cold, this building, this room is, is still and hot. Uh, and it smells like dirt, because literally, these are the tubes coming out of the ground through which come the fiber optic cables that then go off elsewhere. Um, and you walk in, and it, it actually smells like dirt. It smells like earth, because this is the place where the kind of seam is between this, this, this web of network connections, physical web, and the place where it hits the ground. So if, um, if, uh, if 60 Hudson in New York is one side of about a, a good portion of the undersea cables um, that, that transmit almost all communications across the Atlantic, uh, the other side, all the cables go on the other side to a building known as, as Telehouse in the Docklands um, in East India Key. Uh, just you can sort of see it from the Docklands light, light rail, which is a kind of, um, it's a sort of, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing landscape because you, you sort of, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up in, in a science fiction movie. It's this, you know, like a lot of the Docklands, incredibly sterile, and the buildings all have these names like Telehouse or Global Switch or something like that. And everywhere you go, you sort of come face to face with, a, with like a steel gate and a surveillance camera. But this is the other end. You know, this is the under, other end of the cables. And this is one of those dozen most important buildings in the world. Um, three buildings, really. Uh, Telehouse North on the right, Telehouse uh, East on the, on the, uh, on, in the middle, and Telehouse West and back, um, each built about 10 years apart, 1991, 2001, 2011. Uh, Telehouse North built originally as um, disaster recovery space for, um, for trading desks in the city. Um, as a place where uh, traders could essentially immediately flee to in the event something happened in the city, as I, as I guess it did quite frequently in that era, um, and could they immediately resume their trading, sort of desks ready to go. And because of the redundancy built into that, um, built into the building, because of the power systems and because of the telecommunication systems that were put in, uh, in the mid-90s it became the place where the first independent ISPs, um, notably Pipex, are there former Pipex? dial-up users, yeah, um, where independent ISPs could go because it wasn't BT. Um, this was a place that, that BT did not own. It was a sort of neutral ground. Uh, and then from that, you know, two networks came, and then another network came, and then it began, began this sort of emergent process where this became the key place where the networks of the internet met, um, and then became home 
because of those networks that were starting to meet there to the London Internet Exchange, um, which is both a physical switch, a sort of piece of machinery, or, or a several joint pieces of machinery, and also a sort of you know, organization, a kind of both social and, and political organization that, that brings the networks, um, that allows the Internet networks to exchange traffic in, in London. And um, when, um, what was striking to me was when, when I came to see it uh, about 18 months ago, um, the folks at Telehouse were sort of lukewarm. You know, they, they weren't particularly bothered by me, but they weren't particularly eager to you know, spend a day showing me around. But every single network engineer who I contacted in London was happy to, because every single network engineer in London has a, has a key, um, because they all have equipment there. Um, and that it, this is both the physical hub where their networks connect to other networks and also the social hub. There's a cafe there called Bytes, B-Y-T-E-S, obviously. Um, and um, and it, it is, again, like 60 Hudson, one of these, you know, on the short list of important buildings uh, where the networks of the internet meet. And accordingly, um, it is both a relatively secure place. Um, they also uh, are notable, um, Telehouse is notable in that they uh, actually did have their Al-Qaeda threat in 2007, a plot foiled to essentially blow the internet, blow the building up from the inside. But um, what was striking to me, oh, here's this, sorry. Um, what was striking to me was that, um, was that when they did say, when, that, when the plot was foiled and when they, this was announced, rather than the, the sort of news report, quoted the uh, CTO of Telehouse as saying, yes, actually, we are the most important spot on the internet. You know, it wasn't as if, no, no, we shouldn't be talking about this as a secret. But Telehouse is a private company, just like a handful of companies that own 60 Hudson, aren't in the business of saying, no, actually, we're not very important. They're in the opposite business. They're, they are eager to say, we are absolutely the most important. And an equivalent building in, in Virginia, owned by a company called Equinex, um, which also has a, a, a building here that's sort of a second fiddle to Telehouse. Um, but a, a piece of, of tubes was excerpted a few weeks ago uh, with the admittedly sensational headline, uh, The Bullseye of America's Internet. And we did this graphic with sort of red, red circles around a, a satellite image like this. And um, the uh, Equinex, for the next two weeks, kept tweeting, we are the bullseye of America's Internet, we are the bullseye of America's Internet. Because the, the, the need to announce how important they are is far more important than any, any, any notion of secrecy that this building is neither doesn't exist at all or is not very important. And the other key thing with these buildings is that um, they become, these major, these major hubs then become the focus of this kind of parasitic activity where data centers, places where data is stored, then sort of cluster around them. Um, and the build, so if the Telehouse North is the building on the top right and east and west are right below it, uh, the big building right in the middle is, um, uh, let me not get that wrong. One of them is Global Switch, and, uh, and one of them, I'm blanking on the name, excuse me. But, is, but the, all the other two buildings there are also major pieces of um, major data centers and major pieces where networks connect. So you end up, in some ways, with the most legible kind of internet district anywhere, all concentrated in this, in this single spot. Um, that does look like something out of, a, out of a Ballard novel with, you know, pristine, with a little fake lake and this sort of winged victory sculpture, and so it's a very, a very surreal place. Um, and is, in some ways, like that because the buildings are designed to attract their major customers, who are network engineers, um, who imagine that the internet should look like something out of science fiction, 
Uh, and couple, sometimes you can get the folks who design these buildings to, to fess up to the fact that they are, in fact, not that they are designed after science fiction movies, that the internet, and you ask what the internet looks like, the internet looks like something out of a science fiction movie because that's what network engineers think it should look like. That is the most, the most cyberific and the operative, the operative adjective. So I want to switch to the, um, the, other, the other sort of key piece of the internet's infrastructure, which is... Um, uh, the undersea cables, the sort of physical cables that connect continents, um, and which are really by far the dominant m mode of international communications. Uh, satellites are a technology of last resort. You know, you know, it's much easier and more efficient to send um, send information by undersea cable. And they are they're little. You know, they're the thickness of a garden hose, or they're little in one dimension. In the other dimension, they're three or five or eight thousand miles long, and they usually have uh, about eight, five, eight strands of fiber in them, each the width of a hair. And um, inside the fiber are very fast pulses of light, you know, nanosecond pulses of light. Again, if with the basic unit is a 10 gigabit per second wave, then each fiber might have 50 or 60 or 75 10 gigabit per second waves going through it, coming from a building known as a landing station, uh, which is essentially a lighthouse. Um, it's quite literally a lighthouse. It is the building from which the light comes usually about the size of a suburban house and tucked away uh, inconspicuously in some seaside neighborhood. Uh, this is a picture from Halifax, Canada, um, with a cable that stretches from there to Ireland, where most of the cables often stretch from the Long Island or New Jersey shore to Cornwall. Uh, Cornwall in particular is kind of amazing in that there's essentially, in, in Porth Corno, just a little bit south of Land's End, uh, there is essentially a high street of cable landing stations. There are these six cable landing stations lined up on one, on one road, you know, surrounded by hedgerows, you know, being watched by cows. Um, and that is quite literally, you know, this, it's also the place where the cables have always, have always landed. It's 150 years worth of telegraph history in this, in this one cove in Cornwall, and also where the, um, the Porth Corno Telegraph Museum is. But the, um, if they then, they then have, if the light comes from a landing station, there's then a place like this, somewhat surreally, it kind of looks like it's photoshopped on, but a manhole where the cable then connects to the continent. And if light goes in on one end of the ocean and comes out on the other, it's amplified along the way by these repeaters that sit on the ocean floor um, that are sort of size of kind of very large tuna um, that amplify the signal. Uh, but that, the, the immediacy and deliberateness of that connection is incredibly striking to me, that there is literally a tube across the ocean, and not that many of them, depending on how you count, 10 or 12 across the Atlantic and fewer across the Pacific. And the, um, and the landscape globally is changing very fast. Um, this is a map by Steve Song, that sort of tells the story very well, that if, when I started thinking about this three years ago, there was one cable down the west coast of Africa represented by that thin black line, uh, today, and soon there'll be more, there are three active cables down each coast. Uh, with more coming online soon. Because as soon as a country gets one cable, they realize that they can't really build a business around that. Uh, the connection is too tenuous. It has to be more permanent. And so there's another cable for backup, um, or a third cable even more. And in fact, uh, the cables off of Mombasa this winter, you probably read about two of the three were, were, were cut by an anchor, by some, by some technical failure. And that, um, and that, that was a sort of reminder that, that three might not even be enough. Um, that if to build an economy and to rely on these cables, you need more. 
So I was very interested in seeing one of these cables being built, um, that it seems to me that we often experience these very sort of fleeting moments of adjacency online, whether a tweet or a Facebook message or an email or something. And I was struck by the idea that there might be some sort of physical corollary, that there might be a moment where a continent is, is actually plugged in. And so this is, um, this is uh, uh, Simon Cooper, um, who until very recently worked for, uh, for Tata Communications, which is the um, telecommunications wing of Tata, the big Indian industrial conglomerate. And um, Simon, like almost everybody in the undersea cable industry, is English. Uh, and is 42, because they all seem to have started at the same time 20 years ago with the boom. And Tata, in particular, I've never met him, actually. We've only communicated through their, their video conferencing link. Uh, so he's sort of the man, the man inside the internet. And Tata got their start as a sort of undersea cable provider uh, by buying out of bankruptcy, I think two, uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, two big cables, metaphorically big, you know, still these garden hose sized things, but sort of designed for lots of capacity, across, one across the Atlantic and one across the Pacific, and then proceeded to add new pieces onto it until they had sort of built a belt around the world, offering to send your bits to the east or to the west. And if a uh, cable in the Pacific is broken, which means you have to send a ship out and throw a grappling hook over the side and pick up one end of the cable and then find the other end of the cable and then you know, fuse each Harrison strand of fiber together and then toss it back in the water, you know, a process that obviously takes, takes days or weeks. Uh, if a cable's broken, they will send your bits around the other way. And then having done that, they went looking for places to lay new cables, um, which has primarily meant Africa and around um, the, um, the, the, uh, the Persian Gulf. And Simon, like a lot of people in the cable industry, has this incredibly expansive geographic imagination. You know, he thinks about these huge 5,000-mile links, you know, the way some of us think about buying a lamp. You know, he just says, okay, then we'll, we'll having done the belt around the world, we'll start going up and down a little bit, uh, which was exciting for me because I, again, wanted to see this moment of connection, this moment of a new cable being built, and they were doing a lot of that. Uh, the problem was I was worried it might be someplace like um, Guam, which was very far away, uh, where they were laying cables, or Somalia, which was not a good place to stand on the beach waiting for, waiting for things to happen. And instead, with about, um, about four days' notice, um, he said to go to this beach south of Lisbon. And a little after nine on a Monday morning, this guy will come out of the water, <laughs> carrying this, this lightweight nylon line, a messenger line, they called it. And having done that, the skiff will then, that first connection, that first connection that would then be leveraged into this 8,000-mile cable, a system called the West Africa Cable System, WAX, from Lisbon to uh, Cote d'Ivoire to Ghana to Nigeria to all the way to Namibia. Having done that, the skiff would then bring it out to the special cable-laying ship, and then the bulldozer would pull it in, and then it would be floated on these orange buoys until it was in the right place. And you can see the English engineers keeping an eye on things. And then having done that, um, when it is in the right place, the guy got back in the water with a big knife and proceeded to cut each buoy off and the buoy would pop up in the air and the cable would drop to the ocean floor. And he would do that all the way out to the ship. And then when he got there, they gave him a glass of juice and a cookie. And then he'd jump back in and swam back to shore and then he, then he lit a cigarette. <laughs> and then they start this process of actually physically connecting the cable to the other cable that had been brought down from the landing station. And um, they go at it with a hacksaw. They start taking the steel 
the steel mesh uh, that, that's, that protects it closer to land, they start taking that off. And when you see these two guys with tattoos and big muscles going at the cable with a hacksaw, um, you stop thinking about the internet as a cloud. It starts to seem like a very physical thing. And then having gotten through the steel, they then start to work a bit more delicately, taking the sort of plastic, the, um, the sort of rigid plastic off that protects it. And then finally, they, they fuse the eight strands of fiber with the cable that's come down from the landing station. And so they're working sort of with a little microscope that kind of looks like a hole punch machine and actually fusing each hair thin strand of fiber so that they're lined up. And then that becomes the path of connection. That becomes this 8,000 mile path down the west coast of Africa. And then when the tide goes out, they add this extra layer of protection in order to, um, in order to make sure that you know, an anchor or something like that doesn't, doesn't break it, or, or supposedly sharks. And the sharks seem a bit apocryphal, but I think my experience with squirrels, it might be true. <laughs> and then in order to avoid having to put their scuba gear on to put this, this, this extra layer for the first few hundred yards out to sea, uh, they, um, they then uh, wait for low tide and go out and do it there. And what's remarkable as well is that if it's based on the latest materials science and the latest computational technology to put enormous amounts of material, of data through these cables, uh, the, f the sort of gross physical process is the same as it's been for 100 years. And culturally, it's the same with the local laborers. And you can see the English engineer with the hat in the background. And geographically, it's often the same. The cables still connect to the places they've always connected, uh, classic port cities. Uh, like Lisbon or Mombasa or Mumbai or Singapore or New York. And then after sort of three or four days of this activity, they put the manhole cover back on and they push the sand back over the, you know, back, back over the manhole. And then everybody forgets about it. We all forget about it, um, which seems a shame. Uh, you know, we, every time we, we talk about putting things on the clouds, but every time we put something on the cloud, we give up some sense of responsibility for it. We certainly give up any knowledge of where it is. And it seems to me there's a great, a great Neil Stevenson line that he says that wired people should know something about wires, uh, that we should, we, should know, you know, we should know where our, our internet comes from. Uh, we should know what it is that, 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 you know, that physically connects us all, what these cables are. So I wanna, I wanna finish with, um, with a kind of a tale of two data centers. Um, if the exchange points are the places where networks meet and the cables are the lines in between, uh, then the data centers are where our data is stored. And I use, sometimes the exchange points are called sort of generically data centers because they're buildings filled with equipment, but I use it a bit more, a bit more specifically. And data centers usually locate along two major poles. They either gather around uh, where we are um, or around where exchange points are, like around London uh, or in, in Virginia uh, or, um, or in Frankfurt or in Amsterdam, or they go to, to the boonies. They go someplace far away uh, where power is cheap and usually where the air is cool uh, so that um, you can not literally but effectively throw open the windows rather than having to rely on air conditioning and where there's enough fiber to make everybody feel comfortable that the building won't be cut off in any way and often where also there are some sort of tax advantages uh, that allow for, um, you know, that allow this hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment to not be taxed as it's brought to this place. So I focused in particular on the place where the first ground up data centers of the number one and number two most visited websites, uh, Facebook and Google, are built in Oregon. And strikingly, uh, Facebook and Google made the same decision uh, five years apart. 
um, which was to put their first data center uh, in essentially the same place, about 120 miles apart. And so this is in the, well, I, that said though, having made that same decision, my experience there, the two places, was, was incredibly different uh, between the two of them. Uh, this is in the woods behind uh, Facebook's data center in a, a town called Prineville. Um, and if when I went there, I expected this to be some sort of industrial blight on the landscape, it was quite strikingly the opposite. Um, Prineville had embraced Facebook, and Facebook had embraced Prineville. It's a huge building. The first one is 300,000 square feet, um, which is the size of three Walmarts, you know, Walmart being the measure of big in all, in all forms, and uses, uses more power than Crook County, the county in which it sits. Uh, and what's even more striking to me is that it's a, um, it's a surprisingly beautiful building. Uh, it's a place that Facebook has invested, I mean, literally, I mean, a, a good portion of their you know, recent billions of dollars of investment. You can imagine sort of driving up the hill in a semi-truck up to, to fill this building with equipment. But it's also a place that they have said that they're very clearly proud of, um, that they've sort of begun to monumentalize this rather than ignore it or not talk about it or try to hide it. They've said this is a place that is filled with important things, with our things in some form or another. And if you believe that architecture expresses ideals, uh, then that's quite striking. It's very different from a lot of the places of the internet that often look like you know, the back of a, of a shopping mall in some form or another. And the same is true for inside. I mean, normally data centers do not look like this. Normally, they're a lot more of a, of a mess. Telehouse, sort of notoriously, there's a joke of telehouse as the, the Heathrow of the internet because it is sort of such a mess. There's also a great joke that you um, there's a fortune to be made in copper mining in telehouse. Uh, if you could add all the old unused copper cables out, you look like you spend a lot of time in Telus now, okay? <laughs> so, but the um, but that is not the case in Facebook's data center. Facebook's data center is meant to be this very beautiful place that they have been very eager uh, to show off. If each one of these blue lights represents a one terabyte hard drive, um, then this is essentially the source of. Uh, sometimes banal, but occasionally meaningful things, emotionally resonant things, you know, new births and new jobs and whatever it is that we hear about on Facebook. But even having seen there, even having, you know, looked, you know, walked these aisles and it sort of goes on and on and on, aisles and aisles like this, I, there's still a sort of major leap to be made, a kind of major imaginative leap between knowing that these things are actually there, and knowing that this is the place that they come from, and knowing, um, and, and sort of trying to understand what that means, trying to sort of put that in the context of the thing that we see on our screen. But it was quite striking the degree to which there's a lot of pride put into this building, that this building is meant to celebrate in some way the things it holds. And quite striking as well, in Facebook's eagerness, uh, they've actually published the plans to this building with the argument that it is the most efficient data center you could possibly build, and the best thing for all of us is to publish to to have the, that design be copied as much as possible. Uh, all of which was um, in incredibly stark contrast um, with my visit to Google's data center in the in the Dalles, about 100 miles away. And if Facebook had been wide open, and I suppose there's a joke to be made about Facebook and privacy, uh, Google was the opposite. I invited myself over and they said, sure. And then um, it played out like farce, uh, where I was given essentially a tour of the parking lot. And then was sort of marched across and then was shown the, the Googler's organic garden, but it was wintertime, so it was just this patch of dirt. And then when I asked what 
goes on inside these buildings, uh, I was told that I'm, I'm sure that's information that we have internally, but that's not something we often share. Um, clearly, they know what goes on inside these buildings. But what was striking to me was the degree to which Google was the outlier. At this point, I'd been to dozens and dozens of these buildings and had been amazed at how willing all the network engineers that I met were to describe what they do and what these buildings do and to make sure I understood that and to then share that and write about that. And at Google, the response was the opposite. The response was, uh, don't worry about this. All of you, don't worry about this. We'll take care of it for you. There's no need for you to know these things. And their argument is based on um, you know, that both there's a competitive advantage in the way this building works and that there's a sort of need for privacy and that might actually be compromised by walking through this building. But they were by far the outliers among dozens and dozens of places. They were the ones um, who did not seem to see the value in talking about where the internet comes from or what it's made of. And that was particularly striking given that they are the ultimate information company. You know, they are the company that knows the most about us, um, yet we are told that we have no right to know anything about them. Um, which again was very different from my experience in dozens of other places and was quite striking because I had perhaps foolishly held them to a higher standard in some way. So after this tour of the parking lot, we went to lunch and a, a sort of hand-picked group of Googlers um, were, they sort of went around the table and said, please tell Andrew uh, how much you like working at Google and how many people applied for your jobs. <laughs> and um, and uh, again, it was quite striking for a group that is both so powerful in our lives and also uh, ostensibly so, so technically impressive uh, were the ones among you know almost 100 people that I spoke with who were least able to talk about what it is they do that we all use every day. And then I, when I expressed my disappointment that, um, that I hadn't seen the inside of these buildings when I had seen the inside of so many other buildings, uh, the response was that governors and senators had been disappointed too, which was quite, which was quite prescient because governors and senators are now investigating what goes on inside these buildings. And it was also, I don't know if this, how much this matters, but again, if you believe that architecture expresses ideals, uh, this was a profoundly ugly place. Um, this was a place that did not seem to have any pride in its, in its role as a place, if not for humans, although there are hundreds of people who work there, then as a place that is the sort of keeper of our things. Again, in striking contrast uh, with Facebook, this was a place that not only was open, but also seemed to celebrate what it does and what it holds. So the, the DAOs, uh, Google, the town in which Google sits, uh, Google, the Google Data Center sits, is right at the entrance to the Columbia River Valley, which are these incredibly dramatic granite cliffs with the Columbia River going down from the DAOs to, to Portland, Oregon. And it's a place um, that, in, for the last 80 years or so, has been defined by the hydroelectric system that's been built there uh, out of the WPA or out of the Depression uh, and still run by the Army Corps of Engineers and is a place that has this very complicated and incredibly meaningful uh, industrial and environmental and economic history uh, in its role in sort of changing the, changing the Pacific Northwest, both changing the landscape very dramatically and also changing, um, changing the economy very dramatically. And so the, the Bonneville Dam is one of the key pieces of that across the, the Columbia River. And it's just, a, you know, this is about, about 20 miles down the river from, from Google. And you, when you go, it, when you drive in, it's an absolute fortress. Um, there are these huge gates, and an armed guard searches your car and looks in your trunk and then says, come on in. 
And then there is a gift shop and a little museum and an interpretive center and a fish ladder where you can watch salmon climbing up the dam. And all of the sort of complicated and at, at times unpleasant environmental and, and economic history that has been the consequence of the construction of this dam is, is laid out, you know, is, is there for, for discussion and, um, and you can buy a t-shirt. And what's so striking to me is that, you know, this is clearly, this is a strategically important place. You know, clearly this is a physically, you know, place that has some physical danger attached to it that has to be protected. You know, that, that that's why there's this armed guard there who looks in your trunk. But equally clearly, or perhaps even more clearly, it's also somehow all of ours. Uh, this is also the sort of ultimate public infrastructure. And what's striking to me is that how that's quite clear to all of us, but that is not extended at all to the infrastructure of the internet. There's the sense that we don't know where it is, that we can't really know where it is, that we somehow shouldn't be talking about it. Uh, and that, that, that doesn't seem quite the way it should be. Uh, I think that the internet, the infrastructure of the internet, should have more of that sort of sense of public conversation like it does at the Bonneville Dam. So, thank you. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Do you want to stand or come and sit? Would you? Would you? Prefer? Uh, I can come to the next. Okay. So um, I'm going to ask uh, you to do what I didn't do, um, and introduce yourself first before you ask any questions. So let me just lead by example because I realized I hadn't actually introduced myself. Um, so um, I'm Ellen Hausper. I'm uh, from uh, the Media and Communications Department here at uh, the LSE, um, and I do have some questions for you, but I won't take that. Uh, advantage of being a chair and let other people first ask some questions. There's a roving mic, so if you could raise your hand if you have a question and then and state are, your name. There are, there are instructions here to chairing, guide to chairing public meetings in the event of disorder. Yes, so if you're disorderly, I will read out some very stern sentences. There's different grades and levels of um, urgency to them. Okay, here. Hello, yeah, just Martin. My name's Martin Chu. Um, just got a question about the economics of it all. I've, I've always been a little bit surprised that the economics hangs together, where I assume individuals like me pay my ISP so much a month. Um, but this all sort of up to these high-level pipes and price. It all hangs together. I wonder if you've got any comments about that. I, th I think that the um, the the companies that own the backbone networks are also a little bit surprised that it all hangs together. I, mean, I think that um, that the uh, that's, that embedded in your in your monthly ISP bill is some of the sort of you know carrying costs of getting traffic moving traffic internationally. Um, but it's been a very difficult business the whole way through. I mean, a lot of the the major connections were built. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, almost all of the companies then went bankrupt in some form or another, and then we've been sort of living off of that construction since, um, with some new pieces being built now. Uh, but unequivocally, uh, companies like um, like Level Three, one of the big backbone networks, have had um, have always had a very difficult time uh, making money, um, and um, you know, and certainly now, at least in the U.S., the ISPs are beginning to recognize. Uh, that perhaps they're charging wrong. Perhaps they should be capping the amount of bandwidth we use uh, or should be limiting our total usage, which I understand is more often the case here. 
um, or you know somehow should be thinking about moving more to a mobile phone like model where you you know have different speeds or have different quantities you know, uh, different speeds or different caps depending on if it's the middle of the night or or the daytime which I guess does exist here as well um, but everybody every I mean we, everybody pays you know Starbucks pays you know everybody everybody pays at some point and um, but the but the economic reality at the backbone is has always been a bit has has never quite been entirely clear. Um, over there. Um, maybe you could ask, uh, both ask your question and then he'll uh, respond to it. Both of them at the same time. Hi, um, my name's Daniel. I've actually worked in the UK internet industry for about 10 years, so I can congratulate you on the accuracy of your, uh, your, your uh, description. Um, um, I was interested in your, your comment on the, um, the, you said that you'd spoken to the designers of some of these buildings in the UK. and particularly Telehouse and Global Switch. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that, because I was fascinated, having spent many late nights in these horrible buildings and these air-conditioned warehouses. And who, who designed them that way? That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Get the other question. The gentleman sitting next to you had a question as well. Sure. I, I'm going to go in a different direction, though. Do you want to? Yeah, that's fine. We'll OK. We yeah. um, my name's Ben. I'm a internet user. Uh, <laughs> As you acknowledge in in some moments in your talk, Andrew, which I enjoyed very much, uh, there's something kind of strikingly old-fashioned about all of this. I mean, it's it's kind of fundamentally similar to the way that we laid wire a hundred years ago. Is this going to look the same? Are we still going to be using this infrastructure in 20 years, 50 years, or is it possible that there's going to be some kind of paradigm shift and it's all going to be satellites? Like how how long is this infrastructure going to last? Should I answer that question first? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll answer your question first. Um, the, I think that nobody would disagree that for the foreseeable future, it will basically stay the same. That as long as we keep demanding so much more bandwidth and keep demanding more from the internet, uh, the fiber, op fiber optic technology is definitely the um, the thing, the, the the sort of path of least resistance towards providing that, um, you know, perhaps uh, you know, in in twenty or fifty years, there will be some major radio breakthrough that will change that. But for the moment, given the given the efficiency of fiber optic technology and the advancements that change, you know, a basic unit of a ten gigabit per second wave to then swapped out swapped out with a different, you know, sort of pack of gum sized optical module then suddenly it's 40 gigabits per second and the next year it's 100 gigabits per second you know with the same fiber um, but 10 times faster speeds with this new this new little piece of equipment um, expensive piece of equipment um, I think that will stay the same and I think that the basic geography is also relatively fixed with a few exceptions um, the biggest exceptions the exception being the places in the world uh, where both internet penetration and use is still increasing very dramatically. Um, so when you look at the lists of the, the dominant places where networks meet, the ones that are growing the fastest are Moscow and Kiev, you know, the places where the internet is still, is still catching on, is still becoming as dominant a part of our lives as it is here. But I think mostly, for the most part, that structure will stay the same. As for the architecture question, um, the one of the... Uh, I mean, if, if these places are, the things that make these places important are often some fact of geography. Uh, you know, they are it's kind of an example of 60 Hudson at the elbow of uh, Lower Manhattan, which has always been an important 
place for communications and the first route out of town, or a telehouse, um, both on a available plot of land and also a plot of land that happened to sort of at least in the early days before many more routes were built, uh, butt up against one of the major telecommunications chunks, as I understand it. Um, they Then there was always the other piece, which was some charismatic salesperson who convinced all these networks to come to this place. And certainly the marketing of it um, is an important piece of that. Uh, and the architecture and the way that the architecture attracts either network engineers or their bosses. Uh, and the guy um, who I spent the most time with, a guy named Jay Adelson, who is the founder of this company Equinex, the company that uh, is um, quite dominant in the US in owning these, these major places where networks meet. Um, he was the one who, he says very clearly, you know, when, you're, when you've got you know, 15 people from a Japanese telco touring your building, you have to have a grand lobby in a place that seems like this is a place that's an important spot on the internet. And for data centers, that's been the case as well. I mean, there is a move towards slightly flashier things. Um, uh, uh, James Sellers here, your data center in West London is open now and is, is among the flashiest you've built, yes? I mean, it has a, flashy might be a, 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 a too big a word, um, but a, a building owned by, by Telecity in West London um, that when I saw the drawings for it uh, two years ago was quite struck by the fact that this looked, you know, this is meant to look like a data center. And certainly Telehouse's new building um, and the Docklands, that third building, 2010 or 2011 building, uh, is along with Facebook sort of the clearest expression of that. Um, it's a building that looks like it should be filled with internet. You know, it kind of has a pixel pattern, and um, you know, and, and rather than being this anonymous concrete box um, or shoved into a repurposed um, office building, says this is a place that's important, and that that's a trend towards monumentalizing these places that I think is going to is going to continue. Uh, hi, James Holman. Uh, my question, your underlying talk uh, talks about the concentration of these nodes, and there's an implicit security issue here that you seem to be discussing, and so I'd like you to address that, number one. And number two, the virtual security also, perhaps, of, uh, of the viruses that may go on, but, but most, most uh, directly the physical security related to this infrastructure. Well, I think the, um, I mean, the virtual security is the much is the much bigger threat. Um, the physical security. It was very striking to me that the farther up the food chain of the people who own and operate these buildings that I got, the less concerned they were about the physical security. Either you know, good networks are physically redundant, and the network engineers are very proud of that. Um, these buildings are secure, I mean, yes, for sort of terrorist reasons, but also because they're filled with very expensive equipment, and that in some ways is the more dominant thing. Um, and so there's no, and there's also a kind of, again, this sort of inherent publicness to them that you can't, you know, these are the, these are the places where networks meet, and so you can't be silent about where they are, you can't try to hide them in some shape or another. Uh, and they also, because of their scale, um, and because they are redundant with each other, they make, you know, they make sort of bad targets. You know, they don't, you know, they, they don't, it doesn't, they're, they're not, you know, they're places most people don't know exist. They're places where if something happened to them, it would be, you know, a minor or moderate disruption, not a total disruption. And you would be perceived as trying to take down the global economy, um, which is not a good combination. So the, and as well, I mean, the network folks very clearly are much more concerned about the threats essentially from government of trying to legislate these buildings to do 
something that they cannot possibly do because they've not understood what they actually do. So the, the greater threat, for example, in Ashburn, Virginia, the greater threat is from Washington, not from some terrorist group. So the, the, the legislative, in the, in the order of threats, I would put the cyber, the political, and the physical. So, and I mean, and then there, but there were some, I had some funny moments. I mean, the strangest of which was uh, before visiting uh, a very important building, I was, it was the person who was arranging the visit asked if I would talk to the head of security for this big backbone company. And I said, I would be happy to. And they said, we're happy to talk about this building and have you come visit and see it, but we, would, we don't want you to disclose the location of this building. And the location of the building, if you enter the name of this company and the town in which it sits um, into Google Maps, you know, a big red flag lands in the middle of his desk. Um, so it's not, you know, there's, there's nothing to be, you know, there's very, very few, no one has said there's anything to be gained by keeping these places secret in any way. And no one consequently seems extremely concerned that they're not well enough protected, at least at the highest level. Right, there were a lot of questions. I'm going to try and I think you had your hand up first, and then I'll go here to the front and there to the back. One, two, one, two. Okay, sorry. So I just came from the airport here. My name is Patrick. I'm a researcher at the LSE. And so I think on my ticket, it said 50% of my uh, ticket price was tax. And somewhere I read, I could be wrong, the internet is now emitting more carbon dioxide than the uh, aerospace industry. So that makes me think, looking at this picture here, how physical the internet seems to be in your description. And maybe there's a reason for Google and others to obscure how physical it has been because nobody likes tax. So do you think this situation might change with how the internet is being taxed and how the ownership, when it becomes more clear, that it would become sort of a physical asset that so when, I, when I surf the internet, there would be a bill coming, you click 10 times, yeah. you know, the state, $2. I mean, I, I think um, taxes are not my specialty at all, but, um, but, I, but it's quite clear to me that for the most part, the networks, particularly the ISPs, um, only benefit from, from a lack of transparency. You know, they, it's only, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help us that we have no idea how they work or what goes into it or all of that. Um, and that's particularly true as we put more demands on them. You know, in my neighborhood, if you try to watch a movie on a Saturday night, you often can't because the tubes are clogged in some form or another. But it's not clear if they're clogged from my home to the cable company's office or in the connection from the cable company to the, the you know, the Netflix or Amazon, whoever it is. Um, and the, I mean, the tax piece and the carbon piece. I mean, I the carbon piece is is interesting because it's both. Yes, these buildings use an incredible amount of energy, um, but they um, but they've actually become more efficient faster than people had realized. Particularly the, that sort of the hot rods, you know, the buildings, the, the the buildings belonging to the largest companies, the the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles and things like that. Um, so it's not as if I mean, yes, you know, if your phone is checking email all night, there is a machine someplace humming. Um, and yes, they use enormous amounts of carbon, but it's um, they produce enormous amounts of carbon. But it's but it's a um, uh, but it seems um, but that seems sort of self-evident in some ways. So I don't. I mean, I suppose that could be taxed or that could evolve in some way. But I'm I'm I don't, I'm not sure how. So um, here at the front, you had a Hi. Hi, my name is Ruel, and I'm doing a PhD in information systems here at the LSE. Um, 
I wanted to find out from your opinion, what, what do you think are the social implications of greater awareness of the physicality of the internet? And why do you think um, it is important for the average individual to be more aware of this physicality of the internet? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the first thing to say is that, um, that Tubes, the book, is entirely descriptive, that I'm not prescriptive at all, um, with the idea that the first step towards thinking about how the kind of parts and pieces of the internet might be different is recognizing in the first place that it does have parts and pieces. Um, but what's striking to me is that, um, I mean, the food analogy, I think, is a strong one. Uh, you know, that 10 or 12 years ago, um, there was very little, you didn't care where your lettuce or tomatoes came from. Um, and that, if you said that, suggested that you should, then that would seem sort of silly. It's, you know, just a tomato, it tastes the same. And we've seen this incredible evolution where now um, that's, you know, on the signs at the supermarket. Uh, and it's that knowledge that's led to people making different choices about where their food comes from. And that's, I think there's a, you know, that's the kind of pattern that you could see as the internet becomes, um, whether more constrained technically as whether we demand things from it that our ISPs aren't providing, that we want more speed or it doesn't work as well or higher capacity, um, or as the political expectation changes, um, whether it's with a snooper law that you know, says um, that the ISPs, um, you know, can, their sort of usage logs can be requested an ISP in the U.S., um, a sort of prominent but small one, uh, the CEO announced last week that they will be deleting all usage logs after two weeks. And if your ISP doesn't do that, then you should really think twice about being their customer. Um, and that's a sort of moment where you begin to make, um, where you're sort of, it's, you open up the possibility of making choices based on these, either how well it works or what the policies are of your ISP in a way that we haven't really before. And I think that... I mean, it's, you know, we have so many choices with so many other things, and it's so striking to me that we have, we have usually no choice and no transparency into this thing that is the, you know, the single most dominant uh, source of our, of our information. So it's a very, I mean, it's not, it's not a conversation that's happening at the moment, um, but it's clearly, clearly, I think it's going to get more, the conversation is going to get more intense. We're going to both be at are in both directions. Our ISPs are going to be doing things that we need to know more about, and um, and we're going to be asking more of them in terms of how it works. Um, could I have two questions, maybe, from the gentleman here and the one there in the back? With the glass? Yes? Yeah. My, my name's Robert Hall. I was involved in building a dark fibre network along the canal system, which was built back in the 18th century some years ago. So I appreciate very much your strong sense of the arm of history in, in all this business. I think it's exactly right. My, my question is a bit different. It's about net neutrality, which is the ability of these networks to give preference to particular streams of bits over others, a better quality of service, sometimes at a price. It seems to be an argument which is much more uh, active and vitriolic perhaps in, the, in the North America than it is over here. What's your views about net neutrality, please? Okay, could I have another question and then answer both? No, okay. I wonder whether you had any follow-up from Google on your book or the renewed interest in them. So, for example, does your search engine divert you off to random destinations? Yeah. <laughs> um, to answer the net neutrality question first, <laughs> um, the... Um, What's quite striking to me is that when I started this, I did 
what most journalists do, which is go to Washington and ask the people at think tanks and foundations who often talk about things like net neutrality, how does the internet work, and what does this mean, and how does it fit together? And it was striking to me that it didn't really sound right, and it turned out not to be right at all when I started talking to network engineers. It was how the internet worked 10 years ago, um, and the structure has very clearly evolved um, to the point where because of these independent connections between networks, because a Google will connect directly to an ISP, or a content delivery network, a network that specializes in serving videos, will connect directly to an ISP. The internet is sort of nothing but fast lanes. You know, it's nothing but priority lanes. You know, it's not as if everyone's sort of you know getting in the same traffic jam and hoping it comes out at the end. Um, it's all about these you know making connections that work that 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 are more direct and therefore work better. And the financial considerations that go into that are quite obscured. Um, and not, you know, and that's, and it's very hard to, um, you know, it's very hard to just get a clear picture of who's paying whom often, you know, for this. So it's, it's as if, you know, so to say that there's a public internet and everything should be treated equally is to ignore the fact that a lot of network engineers have put a lot of effort into making sure that, in fact, you know, when you watch a YouTube video, it looks quite good and loads faster than some other video that might not have as direct a connection. I remember very memorably talking to a, um, an engineer who works for um, Akamai, which is one of the biggest of the content delivery networks that serves up videos, um, most notably uh, in the U.S., a, a video service called Hulu that's the big uh, sort of NBC, Comcast, you know, major, major network video delivery, video, video delivery service. And I said, um, was asking him how, why does it look so, you know, it looks, it looks great. And he said, you're welcome, you know, because... That's what that's what they're paid to do. It's a big business, and they're paid to make sure these connections are are essentially the fast lanes that net neutrality is ostensibly legislating against. So I could imagine, and this is entirely anathema to the to the sort of conventional political wisdom about net neutrality. But I could imagine that if a video doesn't work well on a weekend night, that I could be given the option of paying an extra three dollars a month on my cable bill to make sure there is a direct connection, not with my cable provider's video service, but with Amazon's video service. So I you know, pay for the special prioritization of my Amazon bits, which is, again, is like absolutely her heretical thing to say in the context of net neutrality, um, but begins to sort of recognize that there, it isn't just this single amorphous blob of the internet, but there are these very specific connections. Those connections do cost money, and we do demand a lot of them in some way or another. So, Google? Um, when the book before the uh, just before the book came out, um, when I my the first conversation I had um, with my publicist and my publisher, and she said, "Oh, we should we should pitch you to, you know, we should pitch you to Google. They have this great author program. You should go speak there." And I said, "No, you should read pages two thirty four to two forty four, and that that and that might not be the case." And then um, I got an email from a Google engineer um, a few weeks ago saying, "Oh, I heard about your book. Uh, we have this great author program. You should come speak there." And I said, "You should read pages two thirty four to two forty four." And, um, and I didn't hear back. And then, um, and then I did hear back. And then I got an invitation to present in New York in October, um, which I have accepted preliminarily. <laughs> but it seems to me, I mean, obviously, it's a very large company. And I certainly did not hold my experience there, attach that to any, any one person. Um, but that said, it's quite striking to me how much it is a culture of um, a culture of superiority, that this is they will take care of things for us, um, that we needn't worry about it. They have the situation under control, and you don't really need to know about the details. And I don't know if you can even understand the details. 
Um, and that's, that's a pattern. I mean, that wasn't just my experience, but that's, that's, that's what German privacy commissioners will tell you and Connecticut attorneys general and all of, you know, this is, this is a clear pattern. And is even more this striking because it is the ultimate information company. Over there. Uh, that one. So again, if you could have two questions from this lady. Um, you spoke about the speed of technology, and I'm curious about your opinions about um, technology as the master, I'm sorry, the servant of the need for information and um, being the master, because, for example, like in high-frequency trading, um, traders often have to be quite close to those trading houses, those stock exchanges, um, because the speeds of the high-frequency trading are faster than the speed of light, um, so that they want the, the fastest responses, the fastest information. So um, would you agree that the need for information is the master and um, the Internet as a technology is only a servant? Okay. Hi. Uh, thanks for your presentation. I'm interested in, in the idea of ownership. And as you say, this, these huge projects like dams and uh, immense bridges needed government intervention in their own time to be built and therefore are owned by the government and in some sense by us all. Um, it strikes me as very, very laden with implication that the internet backbone is privately owned and I'm trying to think of, of the implications of that, and I'm curious what, what you think of that, and ideas like, when will the internet become a human right? How soon will that be, and how, how much the government will start to get involved in ensuring internet access to everyone? And yeah, no, to answer that question first. Um, I mean, I have to confess to a bit of, a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, with the network engineers who I spent time with, um, you know, I did sort of come to believe in in their view of the network um, as um, as this, as this sort of amazing collection of 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 networks operating autonomously, operating in their own self interest, uh, but but strangely sort of worthless without their connections to other networks. And so there's this weird sort of balance that happens between. Um, the, you know, the need of one network to expand in certain ways and fulfill their, their commercial goal, whether it's delivering internet to people's homes or across the ocean or delivering Facebook pages or videos or whatever it is, um, and the need to then find other networks to connect to in order to actually, actually achieve that in a way that doesn't often break. You know, it's rare that you can't get from one side of the internet to the other. It, it's happened. I mean, it absolutely has happened where the internet has fragmented in some way usually because of some dispute between two networks. You know, one says, you pay, you pay me, you know, you pay me, and then they pull the plug, and then you can't send an email from one place to another um, if you're behind those two networks, and that has happened several times. Um, but the, um, so I don't, you know, so, so it's a, it's a, you know, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because the politics of it are, are, are complicated once you recognize that there is no, there is no publicly owned internet. There are university networks that are, I suppose in individual countries might have a, a sort of piece of the internet that, that is publicly owned or an academic network. But, um, but in terms of these global backbones, it is all, it is all private companies. Um, the part that worries me more, or the part that's more striking, is when one single piece of 
when one single network or one single piece of the internet becomes large enough to start to upset this balance of requiring other networks to connect to each other. Um, I can't imagine what company might be that, be that large that might, might do that. But it is, um, but that's clearly, I mean, that, that in some ways is the bigger concern. Um, and as for the, I mean, internet as a human right, um, I mean, certainly, I mean, that's, that's sort of unequivocal. It's not, it's not something I engaged with very deeply in this context, um, but, um, but there's no doubt, I mean, I love the internet. You know, there's, no, <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind that that needs to, needs to spread, certainly. Question about masters or servants? Yeah, the um, I um, I mean the high the high frequency trading is an amazing is an amazing story, um, you know of of essentially uh, d traders trying to be as physically close as possible to the um, to the the trading platforms uh, in order to be able to respond in sort of a nanosecond speed uh, or their algorithms to respond in a nanosecond speed uh, to changes in the market. Um, or even more remarkably, if that's then based on some arbitrage between two markets, between Chicago and New York, or New York and London, and with the sort of most dramatic story at the moment being uh, the first new transatlantic cable in a decade is being will be laid next summer, and it's it's essentially it's only it's only claim to fame. There's no sense that this these routes are over capacity, but its major claim to fame is that it's a shorter route, and so therefore it's, I think two or three milliseconds less travel time between New York and London. Um, with my assumption that the $250 million cable can then, you know, somebody's reserved it for a week, you know, that, and then that, that will be that. Um, but the, um, but otherwise, you know, that being a very s extreme case, I mean, otherwise what's striking to me is the way in which the network follows us um, and the way in which the network does sort of concentrate around where we are and the way in which the, even these big data centers are positioned in order to, you know, you know, in crudest terms, your Facebook page loads fast enough, um, which means, you know, it's, Oregon's too far away. Facebook has to build a data center in Sweden, a thousand miles away, um, to then provide that experience. So in that way, you know, we are the master of it. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm not, but I'm, I'm not sure I can sort of go beyond that in terms of thinking about it in those terms. Thank you. Um, I want to congratulate you on your speech tonight. You made an incredible subject very, very clear to me. But I, the thing I never really thought I needed to know a, a lot about the internet, but one question was always pervasive, and that was, what would happen if, if, the, if it was destroyed or attacked by terrorists? And is there a possibility? But happily, and everybody said, no, 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 that can happen. But you're saying there are only maybe 12 data houses in the world, and they're not closely guarded. I just want you to explain again why I shouldn't be worried that terrorists are going to attack them. Because I'm going to try to explain this to my husband tonight. Yeah. Sorry, what was the last one? Um, yeah, I mean, they're. They're, I mean, they are redundant with each other. For each of these one, there's often a sort of secondary one. And, you know, I mean, London has other, you know, not just one place, but other, other you know, you know telehouse is by far the most important, but the, the smart networks have then have some sort of backup in other buildings in London, including te telecities buildings. Um, and, um, and they're also quite big buildings. And they are, they are very well secured. I, I, they're, they're, they are, I mean, telehouse is, is, a, is a fortress. And 60 Hudson Street in New York is um, is very well secured, and the building in in Virginia Equinix um, 
is, is again, you know, has multiple layers of security and follows certain protocols that the different customers demand based on um, different, uh, uh, what's, what's the phrase, the, the different, uh, different certification levels that they say you must meet this, therefore you have to have a camera every 10 feet or whatever it is. So it's not, it's not something that I hear people very seriously concerned about, physical attacks on the infrastructure of the internet. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's not it's not something, and and certainly it's not something that that um, that certainly it's not something that needs to be kept hidden because of those attacks. That doesn't seem to accomplish um, accomplish anything with it. So, sorry. The the telehouse the telehouse thing was in 2007. Was a Scotland Yard announced the foiling of this Al Qaeda plot to. Blow the building up from the inside. That's the last. So anyone heard about it? Um, I don't know. I wonder if anyone has spent time here in Telehouse who knows if that continues to be a continues to be a big concern. Um, but it's interesting as well. I mean, Telehouse was built as backup trading desks as the in a, as a response to IRA bombings in the city. So this is this is not a this is not a this is not a different reality than anything else, as as, as everyone knows. So. Right, I think we have time for okay, two more questions then, and then we'll have to round up. Okay, yeah, these two. Hello, thank you for uh, adding me to your list. It's generous. On the human rights question, since you say you haven't entered into it with any depth, neither have I, and I don't think many other people have either, but it certainly um, raises a lot of interesting questions as to what exactly is the nature of the relationship or ought to be the nature of the relationship between the concept of human rights and this phenomenon of which you've so eloquently described the, uh, the physical properties. Um, there are plenty of sources of expertise on that kind of question in general in this school. Even if you were to presuppose that the answer is to, well, depends what you mean by when, when the questioner says, is there a human right to the internet? It really depends what you mean by a human right to the internet. But assuming that the answer is a provisional no, there would be quite a number of people, uh, including I suspect Carol Harlow of this, the law school here, who um, would be very, very uh, cautious uh, about extending the list of human rights on the grounds that they need to be protected as being very serious rights and fundamental rights, and the more you extend the list, the more the argument goes that, that the power of it is, the concept is being diminished. Uh, you get the point. Um, but one of the specific questions, specific forms of which it might arise would be, do I have a right to use the internet? And if so, on what conditions? And there is certainly um, a European convention um, privilege or right um, to privacy of home, correspondence and, and so forth. Um, and if the internet used as an instrument of violating that privilege or right, then the UK authorities would probably have an obligation to do what so far they've been very reluctant to do and exercise influence, which the European Court of Human Rights might be prepared to, regard, to expect them to do, um, so that it could not be used in that way. That's a sort of tentative approach to it and it could, it could arise in many other ways. Thank you for giving the answer to one of the questions. It's not an answer, <laughs> it's an attempt to... Mm. It's an attempt at thinking it through. Okay, thank you. And then 
really a final question and your final comments. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Zakan. I'm uh, doing a research on telecommunications law. Uh, I actually wanted to make two comments. Uh, first, building on the uh, material existence and physical existence of the Internet. It actually fits with the legal perspective of the Internet as well. We always face that, that myth that Internet is impossible to regulate. Internet is not subject to any regulation and you are free to plus whatever you want and express whatever you want. Actually, the uh, the cyberspace world is a complete uh, is in complete parity to the physical world uh, because uh, internet is made of at, it's either accessible from a particular place or is uh, uploaded in servers in particular places so this is how national laws comes to existence as for the links whether it is uh, satellites they are subject to uh, international space law or uh, submarine cables which are subject to uh, the laws of the sea uh, in terms of uh, the internet as a human right, and I'm actually I'm doing a research on this matter, and I'm coming from Jordan, which is in the heart of the Arab Spring, so I'm more enthusiastic about the idea of affirming internet as a human right. We, we all saw what, what social media was doing in, in the area uh, in the last year. Uh, away from that argument of the human right itself, I would like to highlight the efforts made in, in terms of defining the universal service obligation. Uh, which is the obligation put on uh, certain providers to provide access to the internet to, to actually it's a bundle of services but internet is one of them uh, for the current status in the uh, European Union what is uh, what is an obligation on all countries is to provide functional access to the internet and each country is uh, free to define what is functional access to the internet but uh, in terms of uh, uh, dealing with the internet in a human right context, I mean, internet as a support of, of uh, freedom of expression, certainly broadband is what we are talking of about, not, not the dialogue. Could I ask Andrew to kind of, because these are two very similar comments yeah. and I think yeah. we're starting a new discussion here. Uh, maybe a new okay. book, I don't know. Uh, so Andrew, if you'd just like to round up maybe with some general comments or if yeah. you have anything to say about no, I mean, the, um, what, I, um, what I had the opportunity to do as a journalist was to go inside these places. Uh, and it was, it was made quite clear um, in almost every single one of these visits that the reason I was being given a tour of these places uh, was uh, for the commercial benefit of the companies that own these places. Um, and that was, um, that was that was the structure under which I was working as a journalist. This was this was I was led into these places either out of the 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 goodness or sense of glory of an individual network engineer's heart, um, or out of the um, out of the commercial interest in the owner of a data center or an undersea cable network or an internet exchange point in making it clear to the world that all of, that they are the most important piece of the internet or the most successful data center or anything like that. And there was never any. Um, there was never any lack of clarity about that um, in my mind or in their mind as well. But the important thing, I think, um, I, uh, the thing that's so striking to me is that there's very clearly an incredibly rich conversation going on about all of these issues. Um, but what, what I was so struck by was that there, um, there wasn't a conversation or there wasn't even an account of what these places looked like or where they are or who ran them or even very clearly how they fit together. Um, and that's very much the hole that I, that I tried to fill. 
given the access that I could achieve as a journalist and not as an academic. Um, which is my way of sincerely saying that I hope that then becomes fodder for you to interpret the ownership structure and the geography um, and the future of these places. So that's all. Thank I you. think we can all uh, thank Andrew maybe with a little...